listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls the only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jeremy Lucero, and this is the Sunday, November 24th, 2019 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's program, I bring you the promised post-strike analysis of the joint CTU-SEIU strike at Chicago Public Schools, which ended at the very end of last month and the new contract, which was ratified by a vote of the CTU's full membership on November 15th. I apologize I did not have a new program for you last week, as I should have, for personal reasons, and we are not able to cover this topic sooner. But tonight we'll take a deep dive into the strike's tactics, its outcomes, and the new contract and the next steps with friend of Labor Express Radio and Layer Beat TV, Kenzo Shibata, who is not only a veteran CPS teacher, a rank-and-file member of the Chicago Teachers Union contract negotiating team, but was also a founding member of CORE, the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, the reform caucus in the CTU, which created the current leadership of the union, which led the historic and successful 2012 and 2019 strikes. Right off the bat, however, I must apologize to our listeners, as I do feel tonight's analysis is incomplete. Kenzo does a wonderful job highlighting the tremendous gains of the new contract, how the CTU's style of member-driven, democratic, militant, community-focused, social justice unionism is what has led to the union's success, and it's really worth listening to what Kenzo has to say here. But as I said in our previous program, the contract is not perfect and it's not without its critics. I was not able to be at the joint Layer B TV, Labor Express radio interview myself, and so unfortunately, some of the more difficult questions about the new contract shortcomings were not directly addressed. I hope to get to do this on future episodes of Labor Express, but Kenzo does indirectly answer some of the criticisms of the contract, and I'll attempt to highlight those where I can in tonight's program. The interview with Kenzo will take up the entire program tonight, so we're going to skip our usual solidarity news segment from our friends at Radio Labor and dive right into the program. Labor Express radio reporter Marnie Goodfriend and Layer Beat TV reporter Andrew Friend sat down with Kenzo yesterday afternoon. You will occasionally hear Marnie or Andrew's voice asking Kenzo questions throughout the program. Kenzo has been a CPS teacher since 2003, with breaks for several years to work directly for the union. He is back in the classroom now. As I mentioned earlier, Kenzo has been a leader in CORE and in the union's reform leadership, and was a member of the negotiating teams both in 2012 and this year. Kenzo started his discussion talking about what makes the CTU style of bargaining unique, the union's members' growing frustrations over this past year with the lack of progress in negotiations, how Mayor Lori Lightfoot's campaign promises both raised the hopes of a quick and just settlement to the contract negotiations and then led to disappointment when she seemed unwilling to put her promises into writing, and how the strike addressed historical inadequacies of previous contracts. As I said on last week's program, I think this contract has made principled advances that are more historic and significant than even what was accomplished in the famed 2012 strike. One of the things that makes our uh, situation unique in Chicago is that we have a 40-member rank-and-file bargaining team on our side. Um, Typically, in negotiations, you'll have like a small table team on either side of the table where management will have um, sometimes a superintendent, um, sometimes it's just top brass uh, from the Board of Ed, maybe some board members. Uh, Then on the union side, it'll be officers and then a lawyer or a field representative from the union. 
Uh, what we do in, in uh, CTU is a little different. We have this 40-member bargaining team, uh, which consists of uh, teachers and clinicians, paraprofessionals, basically every job title you could find under the CTU contract um, represented. And we're also represented by various generations, racially, culturally. You know, We're a very diverse group in every way possible because we want to make sure that our members are all being represented at the table. So. Um, like for example, when we're going back and forth uh, negotiations around class size, and we talk about you know special education in the high schools, we'll have a special education high school teacher there to be the expert to basically teach the board um, what's going on in their classroom and why we need to have class sizes at certain um, numbers or you know certain resources or things like that. Um, but it's been really great as far as uh, democracy, and it's very reflective in the values that the caucus of rank and file educators put forward. And that was something that we promised. We wanted to make sure that every member had voice at the table and that's the goal of the 40 member bargaining team. But one of the great things about being a part of CTU is that you know, we, there'd be a sidebar and then Jesse Sharkey or um, Stacey Davis Gates, one of our officers would check in with us. And they would actually would check in with the members of the bargaining team and say, you know, these are things that we discussed, how should we proceed? And, you know, in my years of working on contract negotiations at IFT, I had never seen that kind of dialogue take place. Like a lot of times, even um, pretty proactive or activist unions, a lot of the negotiations happen between the top brass on both sides. And that was just not the case with CTO. One of the things that was really frustrating was the fact that, you know, we were in negotiations for 10 months before the strike occurred. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot did nothing to, to move things forward. Rahm Emanuel did very little to move things forward in his time doing the same. Um, there was this disconnect where uh, Mayor Lightfoot was saying, I'm going to hit the ground running as soon as I uh, am inaugurated. And then she was inaugurated and she says, well, I'm going to need some time to slow down negotiations. We couldn't go an entire year without a contract. We had to like get things moving. Um, so we, we started pushing and she ran on the same things we were asking for, you know, more nurses, more care workers like social workers and um, psychologists in the schools. And we were really disappointed when she was pushing back on those when they actually were part of the talks. Um, so it was like they were very much dragging their feet for a very long time on the board side. And then um, they started. things started to pick up during the strike when they started taking seriously some of our demands. And the frustrating thing was that Mayor Lightfoot was then going to the media and saying that we were the ones slowing things down. She blamed our 40-member bargaining team. Um, there, were a lot, there was a lot of misinformation being sent to reporters about officers showing up late to negotiations. Uh, I can tell you I was there um, in negotiations. Our officers were there early um, working... Uh, burning the midnight oil, like around the clock, practically. Um, I, I had not seen union officers work so hard on um, getting a good contract for our members, and it was really sad for a lot of our members to see that. You know, and it was it was a misinformation campaign to divide the union as well. I'm, I'm pretty sure of it. Called out a few of the reporters on Twitter for. Um, listening to sources that told them that our officers were showing up late to negotiations to which they replied well i believe my sources and i'm like well i was physically there like you can't tell me you can't gaslight me like you can't tell me that they weren't there when they were there 
Um, so that was definitely a very frustrating thing. Uh, the fact that management really wanted to negotiate in the media and we really wanted to negotiate at the table. We were, I think a lot of the reason why people were ready to strike wasn't just um, what was happening immediately at that moment, but a lot of it was the historical um, inadequacies of our contracts in the past. Like we really set forward in this contract to right a lot of the historical wrongs in the CPS um, and our members were ready for it. And that's why we had the the 94% strike vote. Like, you know, it was um, palpable, the kind of frustration that was happening in the schools right now. We had another school year that started with no contract and like no promise of us having a nurse in every school, no promise of us having social workers for, you know, deeply traumatized students and staff. Um, so, you know, we were starting another school year unhappy and without the resources we needed. And uh, they were, that's why folks were ready to fight. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. The fact that the union got it in writing, as was their demand, chant, and slogan throughout the strike, which means putting advances in areas like class size reductions in contract language, is what makes this contract so significant and such an advance on previous contracts. Kenzo spoke about the state laws that continue to constrain the union on these matters, such as Section 4.5 of the Illinois Educational Labor Relations Act, a state of Illinois law which only applies to Chicago public schools and bans the Chicago Teachers Union from striking specifically over such school improvements as class size reductions. The union now plans to take on such anti-union laws legislatively. Well, there was uh, a Senate bill, or there was a bill that is now law that uh, whittled down our, our bargaining rights even more. Um, in the past, our bargaining rights were taken away in the mid-90s under this clause in the school code called 4.5, which basically um, only allowed teachers in Chicago public schools, it only applies to CPS, uh, we could only strike over wages and benefits, which is not if you ask like teachers what they are willing to fight for, that's not usually the first thing that we say. You know, it's about class size, it's about resources, um, and you know, workers for our, for our students. Um, and we knew that you know this was very intentional. In fact, the lawyer that manufactured this is Jim Franzik, who is the board's lawyer in every round of negotiations. He is on the city side um, all the time. Um, which is interesting too, because Lori Lightfoot did run on this uh, reformer platform, and then what does she do? Is she hires the exact same people to run negotiations? So it's kind of more of the same behind the scenes. Um, but yeah, so then that is what whittled down our um, bargaining rights. And then in 2011, uh, they came back for more, like these out-of-town privatization groups like Stand for Children, Democrats for the edu for Education Reform, which is Cory Booker's um, outfit at the time. Uh, they came back and they forced um, all these other restrictions in our striking. And one of them was that we need to have 75% uh, of total membership uh, vote to strike, not just uh, the people willing to go to the polls, but the folks that um, even if you stay home, it's a no vote. Or you shouldn't stay home, but if you don't vote in the school that day, um, it'd be considered a no vote. And that was a challenge that we took on as not um, the death of the union, but we really took that on as an opportunity uh, in 2012. And we started a bunch of stress tests for the union, did mock votes and polls for that particular strike, did a lot of agitational communication and education. and. Um, 
got got through to folks how important the strike would be um and we were able to f- surpass that we got 90% in 2012 and we were able to surpass that again in 2019 um, I understand that the teachers union wants to address both of those bills yes. in the near future to to make sure that your union isn't facing these you know over, over the over the top hurdles uh-huh. something that other unions don't may not face is that so that's something that you guys are planning on or is that in the works can you tell me a little bit about that yeah so we're going um, you know one of the things with this contract uh, leadership rank and file you know we've maintained that the fight isn't over. You know, we couldn't get everything we wanted in this contract, but, you know, we have other avenues and legislation is one of them. Um, And we're looking to push um, to uh, repeal 4.5 so we can, you know, strike for our students and not just for wages and benefits. Of course, this past strike wasn't just about wages and benefits, but, you know, we were walking a tightrope in doing that. And, you know, I think we did so with some grace, but, you know, I think that management has had almost a pass at this point where they haven't been forced to like explain to the public that they're depriving students of textbooks, teachers, nurses, and all of these things by saying, well, they're striking over wages and benefits. You know, they're being greedy. Well, this puts, you know, the task back on them. Like, you know, if we're going to strike over class sizes, then um, they're going to have to say they're against making class sizes smaller. You know, they're going to have to own the, what they've been doing for the past 20 years. Um, as opposed to just pushing it all on on the greedy teachers. And the other bill we're really pushing on is the elected school board. Um, Every time there's a referendum in Chicago around us electing our school board and not just allowing the mayor to appoint every decision maker, um, it's passed with flying colors, like more than 90%. You know, this is something that the city wants. Um, Even people outside of Chicago feel like, you know, we deserve the same thing that the suburban and the downstate schools have, which is the ability to elect the school board uh, we haven't had that opportunity in Chicago, and that's the reason why if you look at our school board, traditionally, we don't have a lot of educators. We have bankers, we have CEOs, uh, we have politicians, uh, we have people that are indebted to whomever the mayor is. And therefore, like, it's, you know, a board that just rubber stamps whatever the mayor wants. Uh, we want to be able to organize around these issues, and, you know, we have amazing activists that we would put forward. Um, and we're just waiting for the opportunity to do so. In this next segment of the interview, Kenzo Shibata makes an interesting comparison. Kenzo relates cuts in school support services, which began about two decades ago or so, with what is called lean production, a term usually applied to manufacturing. It is a practice begun by management and factories starting in the late 70s and 80s, which found new ways to reduce labor costs by extracting more work from each individual worker, forcing each employee to the near breaking point, but creating tremendous surplus value for the employer. Is one of the key reasons that over the past four decades, we've seen productivity and profits in the economy soar, while wages have remained stagnant. Kenzo argues that the state forced a similar process on the public schools. Well, you know, when I started teaching, um, you felt this lean production model that they were slowly unveiling upon us where um, I think it started a lot with student-based budgeting where schools were given a certain amount of money per student and that was also being used to hire uh, staff. So some that, that put principals in a position where it's like, well, do I need a librarian or do I need a science teacher? Well, I'm required to have students take science, so... We're not going to have a librarian anymore. 
And as the school district was cutting budgets and then kind of making these budget lines a little looser, principals were forced to uh, make these awful decisions. And that led to more work being put on the teachers, being put on paraprofessionals, on clinicians, social worker class size or social worker case um, loads swelled to in the hundreds. You know, like at my school, we have two counselors for 900 kids, and that's not even the worst. Like it gets much, much worse than that. And it got to the point where counselors were not doing counseling. They weren't, they didn't have the time to. They were administering tests. They were administering test prep. They were covering classes uh, when teachers were out. Um, they were doing everything but counseling. Um, and that was uh, really detrimental to our students. Like it's amazing that students are able to get into college or even get through, you know, a difficult time in their learning, you know, in difficult time at, at home. Um, because they didn't weren't able to like spend a good amount of quality time with their counselors and you know that was something we fought for in this contract and we finally have it written in in writing now that counselors are supposed to counsel um students according to national standards now the um the challenge right now is implementing this because now we're going to have counselors having to tell their principals i can't do this because i have appointments with my students i can't administer this test and this is when you know our field team is going to really have to be taken to the task um, to to fight for grievances, but also on the building level, we're gonna have to back up our counselors. You know, we're all every single person in the building is gonna have to stand up and say, no, this is not right. And that doesn't mean taking that work away from them. Um, that means pushing the system to the point where they have to hire more people. Like one of the things that we knew going to this con going into these contract negotiations is that the system is not as broke as it used to be. You know, we came into contract negotiations with almost $2 billion in additional funding, a um, billion dollars coming from changes in the state uh, funding code, and then another um, $800 million coming from this tax increment financing surplus that the mayor could use, have used towards the schools. Uh, so we're going to have to you know, stop taking on this extra work, really, you know, put an end to lean production and put it on um, the CPS now to hire these people and, and use that money that is really intended to hire teachers and build quality schools. Would you say that uh, you got more money out of the city than they initially offered you? Definitely. You know, one of the interesting things about contract negotiations was that the mayor said that we were broke about five times. And that there was no more money to be had, and one of the patterns that I found on uh, during the strike, at least, was the mayor would say, "Okay, we've given you enough. We're broke now for sure. There's no more money." And then we would have some sort of big, massive action, like we had an action on the Lincoln Yards, which is this big cash giveaway to corporations. Um, we had a big action downtown where we circled um, City Hall during the mayor's big budget address. Every time we had one of those actions, they found more money either that night or the next day. So really like direct action does get the goods and we saw that and that was great political education for, for our members. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. One of the more exciting and significant developments with this strike was the solidarity between the CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union, and SEIU, Service Employees International Union. It was key to the success of the strike. In 2012, as Kenzo explains, SEIU members were not ready to strike and cross the CTU picket lines. 
This time around, they stayed out three days longer than needed after reaching a tentative agreement to stand in solidarity with the CTU members. And the wage gains as a result were even more significant for the SEIU members, as so many of them were earning barely above the city's poverty line. Well, one of the things in CTU we keep repeating is that like our 2012 strike was what set us up for the 2019 fight, really. Like a lot of our, a lot of it was us building the plane in the air as we're flying. Um, And now we have a plane, (laughs) so to speak. And um, SEIU Local 73, um, they were viewing that as like, this was their strike to build the plane, essentially. Um, And it was a great plane. Like they got the richest contract in their history um, by striking alongside us. Um, And I'm so happy about that because that was, uh, there were a lot of workers on that contract that were living below the poverty line. And they really did need this kind of relief. In 2012, um, I'll be blunt, their leadership was not good in 2012. Um, they were not an organizing union. They were not even an activist union. Um, and they crossed the picket line um, when uh, we went on strike. And that's not to blame the workers. You know, the workers were with us. Um, they weren't organized. Um, so you can't really, like, they couldn't just have a wildcat strike just because they felt, you know, sympathy with us. Um, you know, fast forward now, um, they aren't a member-driven union, but they're a much more active union now and organized. Um, and they were very well prepared for this fight. Like their um, strike vote was even higher than ours. I believe it was like 97%. And, um, you know, I was just talking to a lot of the SICAs, the special education classroom assistants at my school. And they were maintaining that, like, they were ready to fight. And, you know, they wanted to... Um, they were willing to sacrifice and, and go far. And, you know, we were having a lot of really strong, rich conversations about the labor movements. And it was like night and day from 2012. Um, and we were all in this fight very much together. You know, I teach classes that have special education students in them. So my Sikas are my angels. Like Sikas um, are teacher, teaching assistants, but they also handle toileting and diapering of students. Like any need that the the students have they take care of same thing with bus aides like you know these are the folks that typically live in the communities where they work and they're critical to the success of our schools so having them together with us was amazing and they even stayed out a couple of days longer after they had gotten their ta uh, in solidarity with us Um, so i'm very confident that there's great things ahead um, for that unit, um, a lot of rank and file leaders kind of emerged from that, that really didn't feel like they had an opportunity before. So I think there are even better things ahead in the next contract. Kenzo related to Marnie Goodfriend and Andrew Friend some of his fondest memories and highlights of the strike. There were so many moments uh, that were huge. Um, day one was amazing because that was, uh, you know, having 30,000 people in the streets was unprecedented, like literally unprecedented. We had 10,000 in the streets in 2012 and we thought that was amazing and it was, but you know, I think this time we had more members involved, but also more community involved as well and parents and uh, students on the line. Um, Students were organizing their own actions. They, you know, they organized and protested at City Hall. Um, It was really just, Every day on the line, you would see new things that were just amazing. Like at my school, um, the teachers and staff 
all came together and they dubbed this corner where we were marching Loryville after our mayor. And we had a potluck one day. Another day we had um, a British Bake Off where everyone was, you know, brought in their baked goods and we had a contest and we raided them. And um, there was a lot of camaraderie on the lines that kept people afloat. Um, and, you know, I've, I saw a lot of um, just uh, the unity between CTU and SEIU Local 73 um, was amazing to see on the lines as well. Um, just, you know, not seeing those divisions was really great and seeing the red and purple alliance every day. Um, I would say like one of the moments that really sticks out in my memory was uh, we were going to the big march, uh, the last march, the last day on um, right before we got, you know, a TA signed and um, emerging from the train station and it had been snowing and they were setting up Chris Kindle market. And just thinking, how long have we been on strike that it's Christmas time already? Um, so we go out and it's snowing. Everyone's kind of miserable. But then as soon as we all found each other um, and everyone was marching in unison, um, it, made me f it made me feel like, you know, we still had a lot of momentum. The fact that on the last day, one of our least attended marches still had 10,000 people show up in a snowstorm. Um, and that was the day that... Um, Jesse Sharkey finally met with uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and then we got a deal. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. We need to take a station ID break, but when we return, we'll hear more from Kenzo Shibata, CPS teacher and member of the CTU's contract negotiating team, about what was gained in the new CTU contract with the Chicago Public Schools and the significance of the strike for the future. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. On tonight's program, we're getting an analysis of the recent CTU-SEIU strike at Chicago Public Schools from Kenzo Shibata, CPS teacher and member of the union's negotiating team. We'll get to Kenzo's discussion of what was won in the CTU-SEIU strike at CPS last October in just a minute, but before we do that, there was an interesting scandal that erupted during the strike that critics say revealed the new mayor's priorities. It's something that we did not address previously in our strike coverage, so I want to address it here. The mayor shifted pension obligations and security costs off the city's budget and onto CPS, reducing the city's budget deficit, but making it appear that CPS was more short of cash than need be. Part of those funds would go to reimbursing the police department for housing police officers in the schools, as you will hear Kenzo refer to in this segment. But what Kenzo has to say in the second half of this segment is even more interesting. He points out that the mayor had threatened to cut off the teacher's health care benefits starting November 1st. It was obviously a huge threat that loomed heavy over the union in the final hours before reaching a tentative agreement. Kenzo argues that this is one more case pointing out how Medicare for All could be a huge boost to unions in negotiations, removing employers' most potent weapon to force concessions from workers in other areas. Could the Chicago Teachers Union have won more and an even better contract if they had not had to fear losing their health care benefits in the midst of the strike? Well, you know, it was money that went to the police. And uh, this was a warning that a lot of us on the left had was, we're, you know, don't 
um, don't elect a prosecutor for mayor because that's the lens they're going to see everything. The lens is not going to be through restorative justice. The lens is going to be through putting people in jail. And, um, you know, she really showed um, herself through these contract negotiations and where she prioritizes things. You know, one of the things we did fight for in this contract was additional money for restorative justice, which we got. Um, but it doesn't go far enough. Um, and we do need to have more care workers than was even promised to, to implement these things. Um, so, you know, having that lens of, of um, law enforcement, um, it, it also painted the way she handled negotiations. Uh, it was very much like, how dare we ask for anything? You know, we're her employees. Um, and it was, it was like an interesting way, interesting education in the difference between authority and, and power. Because I felt like we were extremely powerful, the workers in the communities. Like we had tens of thousands in the streets. We were able to shut down, um, you know, streets, major streets at a time. We were able to, um, you know, halt the education system for 11 days. But the the uh, the mayor still had the authority to shut off our insurance, for example, and she had the authority to decide when uh, we get makeup days, um, and. So even though we were building and building and building and fighting for all the things that we knew we needed, there were certain things she just had a lot of power over. And one of the things that I think the media really got wrong were was not um, addressing the fact that we were th that the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools threatened to shut off our insurance um, on November first, and you know that is right there so critical. Like talking to members, there are so many members who have family with um, chronic illnesses or terminal illnesses. And um, without insurance, we're looking at tens of thousands of dollars, like myself. My wife, Erin, has uh, metastatic, metastatic breast cancer. And we'd be on the hook for tens of thousands of dollars a month if we didn't have insurance. This was weighing heavy on a lot of us. And um, the mayor knew this. And you know, it's, I don't see how anyone can find that ethical at all, the fact that she was willing to do that. Um, but I don't know if we would have been willing to stay out longer to fight for more, but definitely that was something that was a factor in us knowing that it was about time to stop the strike. Um, so many members are, are, are needing, um, that medical, um, uh, that healthcare. It's also another case for, uh, Medicare for all. You know, I would say like, if we didn't have that, if we had Medicare for all, we didn't have to worry about employer based insurance you know, it would totally change the power dynamic in negotiations. So, you know, the fact that the, the, the health insurance have been threatened to be turned off on November 1st, uh, we had heard that, you know, several days before November 1st, mm -hmm. and it was being debated on the line and talked mm -hmm. about, um, uh, uh, and, you know, teachers were being, like, given options and then warnings about, like, well, if you do lose it, here's what you can do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from what you were hearing, what effect was that having on the fact that, Right up there at the end, like it was October 31st, mm -hmm. it was your final rally and, and, and final meeting with the mayor there. Um, uh, you know, c considering the House of Delegates, I guess, vote uh, was the night before, perhaps. Um, you know, how much did this affect people's voting? How much did this affect pe people like wanting to say, okay, we got to make sure we, we don't go to November 1st? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't really speak for everyone, but it was definitely a big part of every conversation. I would say even from the very beginning where people were asking, you know, there was some reticence about going on strike in the middle of the month for that reason even. 
uh, even um, because, you know, folks were thinking, well, maybe we should go out on the second or third or like, you know, we legally could have struck about a week earlier than we did. Uh, we pushed our, our timetable for uh, many reasons. One of the more, more important ones because we wanted to line up with SCIU uh, when they went out. Um, so there were a lot of tensions in every single direction, and that was definitely a, a huge one. Uh, one of the things that was really cool that happened at the beginning, um, right before uh, we took the, the strike vote, was Bernie Sanders came and rallied with us. And he talked about his um, health care plan, and he talked about you know Medicare for All, and he also talked about his plans for labor. And that was very kind of reassuring and aspirational because, you know, he explained to us that under Medicare for All and his labor plan, the money that we negotiate for insurance will then go back to us as educators, you know, negotiating these contracts as, you know, in spite of what a lot of his opponents are saying. Um, so that was something that really, uh, I don't know, made me feel better about the future. You know, even though I knew in this particular contract we wouldn't have that, um, in the future we could fight that much harder under that system. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Okay, so what was the outcome of the strike? What was won in the new contract? Kenzo first discusses the ratification vote of the membership. The first vote to end the strike was taken by the House of Delegates on October 30th and was too close for comfort for the union's leadership at 364 in favor and 242 against. It indicated a considerable level of opposition to the contract and a significant desire to stay on strike and demand more. It would have been good to get Kenzo's thoughts on this, but unfortunately I was not at the interview to press him on this question. But whatever the case, when the new contract was presented to the full membership, it passed overwhelmingly with 81% in favor. Though certainly the health care issue and the daunting prospect of returning to the picket line after being back in the classroom for two weeks were no doubt factors. It can't be overstated the importance of making real the demand to get it in writing. The fact that the union got class size limits language and school quality improvements like nurses in every school and more counselors is a huge win that sets a major precedent moving forward. But Kenzo also just briefly addresses the issue of investments in special ed, acknowledging that the gains here in the contract were simply getting CPS to follow existing law which they have not been doing for years. Special education parents, teachers, students, and advocates have been some of the unions and the strike's fiercest supporters, but they're now some of the contract's most significant critics, feeling that much more should have been accomplished with special ed before the strike was ended. This is an issue I really would have liked to press Kenzo on more. Interestingly, I think perhaps he did address it indirectly, he seemed to indicate that one step forward is that since it's now in the union's contract that schools follow the law in regards to special ed provisions, the union can grieve over these issues, adding a new tool in the fight to force CPS to meet its obligation to special ed students. Okay, so we got 80% of voters uh, ratified the agreement, um, which... Uh, was great. You know, that was our House of Delegates ran a vote about a week prior to that, and it was 60-40. So over time, you know, when you're not in the heat of a strike and you have time to sit and review it, um, I think a lot of members saw that we made some, that we made some big changes to um, the contract. And um, one of the things that we're going to get within five years is a nurse and a social worker in every single school, which is huge right now um 
most schools, like my school, for example, we have a nurse one day a week, and we have students that have mental health issues, physical issues, um, you know, students that have diabetes, students that have um, allergies, and you know, they're having EpiPens being administered by non-medical staff. Um, so definitely having that um, was huge. And social workers too, like our system is traumatized beyond belief. And um, we don't really have the kind of support students need to focus in school. Um, so now we're going to have that after five years. We had to fight hard to the nail to get that. It seems kind of weird that we had to fight to keep our students safe, but we had to. Uh, we had... Uh, this is also unprecedented, uh, additional supports for our students in temporary living situations. So schools that have high numbers of homeless students will get additional funding. And then this, the board will also hire uh, workers who will work with these students to ensure they have what they need to come to school and to be successful in school. Um, because this is one of those huge disparities in the system. Like some schools have higher numbers than others. And one of the, I, one of the things that we were really um, trying for is um, getting equity in this contract. And that's why um, when, when, even when it came to like phasing in the social workers and the nurses, we want to make sure that those workers go to the neediest schools first and then phase in over time to the schools that don't have the same kind of high needs. Um, because it's always been the elephant in the room that our schools aren't equal, even though they're being um, rated and evaluated uh, on the same kind of scale. You know, some of our schools have more students um, with free and reduced lunch or traumatized or going through um, medical conditions because of environmental issues in their neighborhoods. You know, every school is unique and has its own unique problems. And this contract actually addresses that. And we, getting the board to admit that these were some structural problems was a huge change uh, since 2012. Um, another big change to this contract was we got class size caps for the first time. We've always had advisable class sizes in Chicago where if our classes hit a certain threshold, there was a whole process to report to a committee. That committee would make evaluations and they would uh, make recommendations on how to alleviate those class sizes. We still have that in place, but in addition to that, there's a little bit of a higher threshold where automatically the school has to hire additional staff if class sizes get above this like higher threshold now, um, which is forcing the hand of the board to do anything was is unprecedented. And um, I think could have only been possible with a strike. We finally inscribed um, our schools to be sanctuary schools. And this was something that was, um, it was pretty emotional when I was talking to my students about it. Uh, they, uh, my students are, a lot of them are, are living under fear of ICE constant fear and to the point where like parents are afraid to apply for financial aid for things uh, apply for scholarships apply for you know just being part of the greater system is just a, a very scary factor and like for some parents even sending their kids to school like that that could feel like a risk to them um so like and i talked to my students and about it throughout negotiations before we went on strike. And I said, one of the things we're fighting for is, so our schools cannot report you to ICE. Like it'll, it's inscribed, it's not just a promise from our mayor, it's something that she cannot go back on. And they're like, you know, you need to fight for this. <laughs> you know, um, essentially my students were saying like, don't come back without this. Um, and then I was able to do that. And I came back and I had a whole presentation for them about the things that 
uh, things that we won, things that we didn't win, and really uh, a session of where like they could talk about you know what they were feeling, what they were experiencing during the strike. Um, and that was big for them. Um, the fact that they felt safe in schools, like I was saying earlier, like if the kids don't feel safe in the schools, they're not going to learn. And if they're looking over their shoulder for you know immigration agents, they're not going to be able to pass that math test. Uh, so delivering that for them was huge. Um, the special ed gains were really interesting because a lot of them were us forcing the hand of the district to follow state law around special education and class sizes and composition of those classes. Um, without, you know, in the end, we're going to end up saving the district money through, uh, by avoiding lawsuits because, you know, our members are going to grieve. You know, if class, if um, special education um, resources are not given to them, if the class size composition changes, you know, we were going to, we're prepared to file grievances and, and fight on that um, and organize around that. Um, because the board traditionally has just kind of let these things happen. And that's the reason why we have a state monitor um, basically running our special ed education right now because our district could not be uh, trusted to do it themselves. So now we have a state monitor and then you have our union being the most responsible actors in ensuring our special education students getting what they need uh, and not the board. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. Recent charter school organizing and contracts with the Chicago Teachers Union in some ways paved a way for some of the gains in the new CPS contract. Ironically, in their desire to privatize the school system, the folks that wrote the laws creating charter schools did not put the same limitations on them that they did with the CPS. And as a result, as teachers organize at these schools, they can sometimes demand things in their contracts that the CPS teachers previously could not, such as class size limits. One example is sanctuary protections for immigrant students, which were won at several charter schools and were now included in the new contract with CPS. Well, one of the cool things that happened in the past couple of years, so, well, this, this, um, the American Federation of Teachers and the IFT and CTU have had this partnership in organizing charter schools, uh, I want to say for a good 15 years or so. And with relative success, uh, in the past few years, it's been picked up a lot. Like we've been organizing, we're, Chicago right now is the most organized charter system in, um, in the country. And uh, what happened in the past couple of years is that CTU now um, and the, uh, the charter local merge. So they're all under CTU Local 1. So we're just one big family. You know, our House of Delegates meetings has charter school teachers and traditional neighborhood school teachers as well, um, which has been awesome for organizing and, and awesome with just exchanging information. Um, one of the cool things about a new union is that it's almost like the possibilities are endless. They don't have a 300-page contract where they're submitting proposals to, to tweak those articles when they're negotiations. They're negotiating a brand new contract, and they see that the sky's the limit. And for a number of these charter schools, they have high numbers of undocumented students. And they saw this as an opportunity, like, why don't we bake sanctuary school status into this contract? And that gave us the precedence then to also fight for it. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of this um, in the future that, you know, they're able to push for things that maybe we couldn't. And um, we also have a lot of the, um, the things in our contract that would might take them years to get. Um, but now we, ha we set that precedent too. So we're one big local. 
You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Workingful by Working People. One complaint made by some members of the union concerned the six lost days of pay that were a result from the strike. The union negotiating team fought hard to win back all lost days, but was only able to get the mayor to agree to five of the 11 days lost to the strike. It would have been helpful to hear how much was lost on average in those six days compared to the wage gains in the contract. Unfortunately, this question will need to wait for a later date. Kenzo explained that this was an important enough issue for the union that they stayed out an extra day to win the five days the mayor was forced to eventually agree to. I really looked at that as um, we were defending teacher unionism by fighting to get some makeup days back. Um, Essentially, if a mayor or a superintendent or whoever the boss is, is able to have like a never ending strike and not make up those days, then um, they have basically all the power in the world. Like traditionally a mayor or superintendent, they don't want to have political damage done to themselves. So that's why like they have a lot of skin in the game. Um, and that forces them to negotiate in good faith, um, or at least, you know, it approximately good faith. Um, in our case, you know, we had a mayor for some reason, she did not see the political damage or cared about the political damage she was doing herself by forcing us into a long strike and keeping kids out of school. Um, and that was, uh, that was just, she was reckless in that. Um, she needs to have something that dissuades her from um, pushing us into long strikes and having to pay for those makeup days um, is a big piece of that. And it was almost like from the beginning she wanted to remake how negotiations are even done by using um, makeup days as a bargaining chip and not something that we settle at the table. Like when it comes to makeup days, it's it's a given. You're going to try to make up as many as possible. Both sides want that. You know, the management wants the kids in school. Teachers want kids in school. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer. And that's usually part of the what they call the re-entry package in negotiations. Toward the end, you talk about um, which days are made up, and both sides agree to it. And then usually there's a there's a handshake, and then both sides move on. Um, in this particular case, she wanted to turn those into uh, something to bargain over, uh, and a major point of bargaining, and something that she could take away unilaterally. Um, so we had to fight hard, and we had to be creative. And the fact that um, our leadership uh, proposed that to the House of Delegates that, like, you know, we're going to try to get those days back, try to get some of those days back tomorrow, and then we'll accept this contract. Um, it was a very big risk. We don't know. The mayor could have said no. Um, we don't know. We don't know exactly what would have happened. But, you know, we took the risk and we organized hard and got 10,000 in the street to kind of back up. Um, the you know the threat that we put out there, and we were able to to get five of our half about about half of our days back. Um, so I saw that as a big win. A lot of our members did as well. Um, students not as much. A lot of them wanted to have you know just say oh you know those are eleven day vacation, but you know we have to teach them. <laughs> Another weakness of the new contract is the union's concession to the mayor agreeing to a five year contract as opposed to a three year contract. A three-year contract, which the union had originally demanded, is not only a best practice for a fighting union looking to continuously build on the gains of prior struggles and keeping the membership mobilized, but also would have put maximum pressure on the mayor as it would have put the next contract negotiations in an election year. The union could have played candidates off one another and used its vast membership and its allies to full effect. 
Instead, now the next contract fight will come well after the next election is decided and the pressure on the mayor will be weakest. This means the union will likely put all its efforts into an electoral strategy, trying to elect a new mayor more friendly to the union. Such an electoral strategy, though not necessarily inherently antithetical to a militant fighting union prepared to use direct action and focus on membership mobilization and community organizing, far too often becomes a substitute for direct action and a major drain on union financial resources. Indeed, this has been one of the most consistent critiques made of the current CTU leadership by more militant members of CORE itself. I do find it concerning, as you will hear in this segment and as you heard throughout the interview with Kenzo, that he seems to believe that moving forward, the union's primary strategy will be legislative. Well, you know, we saw this as an opportunity to, like, we didn't, we wanted a three-year contract, and that was something we were pushing for. Uh, we wouldn't have gotten the kind of contract we did had we pushed harder um, on duration as opposed to um, other issues. And um, so that was something that we settled on, that, that five-year contract. So we were looking at this as, you know, this is our five years um, where we're not building towards a strike necessarily. So we're building towards legislation. We're building towards contract enforcement. Um, you know, it's not ideally what we want. And we know we knew for sure that this was what the mayor's plan was, is that she didn't want to be accountable for this contract. She wanted to go into her next term so she can get into re-election. But I also feel like, at this point, she has done so much damage to herself. Um, I don't know if she has a, a chance in hell of being reelected. Um, but the task is really on us to find someone better to run against her um, in this time. Um, so I think that's that's also part of our challenge in these, not five years, but you know, much sooner than that. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. Whatever weaknesses there may be in this contract, as there are in, of course, almost every contract fight, I think any objective analysis will conclude this is a big win, an historic win for the union and for public education in the city of Chicago. What's even more exciting is that, like in 2012, there's a good chance the Chicago example will reverberate across the nation. Kenzo talks about this at the end of the interview. Kenzo explains that the Chicago teachers initially took their inspiration from the 2011 Union Uprising in Wisconsin. Then teachers around the nation took their lead from the Chicago 2012 teachers' strike. He wraps up by saying that when we fight and when we negotiate, we need to be bold and to be audacious, not to settle for crumbs. Only by making big demands do we get historic, lasting victories. It's very similar to the struggles in CTU with our charter uh, sisters and brothers and in our traditional neighborhood school members as well. Um, we're all feeding off of each other and feeding into each other. Uh, Rebecca Gorelli, who is one of the leaders in Arizona when they went on strike, um, she initially came out of CTU and she struck in 2012 and that's where she really got her organizing chops and she brought that back to Arizona. And she cites us a lot as, um, you know, the inspiration for her, you know, talking to her coworkers about, you know, taking this risk. And then, you know, West Virginia, Oklahoma, a lot of those leaders um, cite CTU as their inspiration. Um, I would say definitely one of our biggest inspirations in 2012 was the 2011 Wisconsin uprising. You know, we saw that a bigger world is possible, organizing beyond the traditional model of unions um, was possible as well. You know, we could form a, a big diverse coalition and shut things down. Um, and that fed into 2012. Um, and 
teachers from all over those red states that went on strike and that rebellion, um, they cited us as, as their inspiration. And I would say in 2019, they were again our inspiration because seven years had passed. Like, you know, there are, looking at my school, we have a lot of teachers who have only been there for one, two, three years. They were, they had never struck before. In fact, like, you know, I had to have a meeting early in the year specifically just for people who had never been on strike. Um, which is a, it was a fun meeting. It was supposed to be 20 minutes and it ended up being an hour and a half because there were so many questions. And uh, that also, you know, kind of on a side note, but that meeting gave me a lot of hope too because I was afraid that the first, second, and third year teachers weren't going to feel the same solidarity. And they were ready for it too. Like they were in, they were teaching for a month or two and they're like, wow, there's a lot wrong with this system. <laughs> we need to regroup and, and, and fight this. So, you know, we had great participation on our line um, of, of brand new non-tenured teachers. Be audacious, have radical demands. Um, don't negotiate against yourselves, you know, from the beginning. You know, really think aspirationally in what you need. Um, and I think that there are a lot of possibilities that are open now that weren't open a few years ago. You know, people are talking about uh, the labor movement and socialism and you know about capitalism in a very negative way that they hadn't in the past and we just need to keep pushing forward and be courageous and bold about that um, because the ruling class is actively working night and day right now to roll that back thank you to money good friend and andrew friend i'm gonna start calling you guys the two friends from now on by the way for uh getting that audio there i appreciate that for uh doing that interview and getting that audio to me in a very rapid manner i appreciate that um, and of course, thank you and congratulations on a hard-won victory to old friend Kenzo Shibata. Keep up the good fight there. And, uh, and I want you to know we're all pulling for your wife in this difficult time. Uh, you're both in our thoughts and hearts. Um, I know this is tough right now. So uh, thank you, Kenzo, for taking out time to do this interview. That's all for tonight's program, but there's much more on the Labor Express radio Facebook page at laborexpress.org. And once again, I want to let you guys know some exciting news that I announced for the first time in our last program. Uh, our Larabee TV producer, Gary Brooks, uh, thanks to him, we are now fully in the podcast era. You can now find Labor Express on Spotify, on Google Podcast, on Apple Podcasts, basically almost all the podcast services. You, you can find Labor Express now, so there's no excuse not to, to miss Labor Express anymore. You can get us pretty much everywhere. So... Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBW Local 1220. These expressed on Labor Express are those of us produced in of IBW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. The songs are themed called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in next Sunday at 8 p.m. for another edition of Labor Express. <laughs> Yeah, this one's for the workers who talk